Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. The Kingdom Ethics Podcast is a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where the world's hardest questions meet faith's deepest values. Today, David and I are going to be talking about St. Oscar Romero. Romero was born in 1917 and assassinated in 1980. He is the fourth Archbishop of San Salvador and is famous for his activism and his courage speaking out for the poor and the disenfranchised during the San Salvadoran Civil War in the 70s. He was a powerful voice against violent and authoritarian government, a proto-liberation theologian, and I find him particularly interesting because his story is one of change, ideological shift over time, something that we don't always see and something that isn't always appreciated. We hope you enjoy this conversation. We're glad you're here. This is Kingdom Ethics. So you've got uh, Jeremy and David back in the Center for Theology and Public Life. Dun, dun, dun. Studios, the smoky backfilled rooms of the future of theological, ethical, public life. Edu- I, I, we do a lot of stuff back here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and today we are at the McAfee School of Theology where the Center for Theology and Public Life lives. There's people all over the place. Uh, folks run around, people getting ready for some upcoming events. One of them has to do with uh, you and the new book. The uh, February 25th will be uh, on with Trip Fuller and the Homebrew Christianity podcast. The second most interesting, t- trendy podcast in America, not to be understood to be in the same league as Kingdom Ethics. Hosted by Jeremy Hall. Tripp's doing his best, but I mean, he's <laughs> he, he's only got eight podcasts in his empire, reaching millions every week. But well, we are going to condescend and let him spend some time with David, and we'll have Colin that mm, week. Yeah. All right, fantastic. Yeah, it's also live at some place. It's it's at a brewery? We should know this. Yes, some brewery in Atlanta. I just go where people tell me. That is true. Yeah, just tell me where I'm supposed to be and I'll be there. But that's really exciting. If you're in the Atlanta area, we will post a link to that event so that you can be a part of that. I understand that it's free. And last time they gave us some really cool swag. Uh, So things in my collection of Baptist drinking paraphernalia... (laughs) Um, I have a McAfee School of Theology bottle opener, a McAfee School of Theology koozie, and a McAfee School of Theology pint glass. These are not your grandpa's Baptists. <laughs> These are the fun Baptists. That's why I told someone the other day. It's a frequent question when folks find out I'm a Baptist. They're like, so what about me do you hate? <laughs> is usually the next question. And usually it's that they think they should ask questions like that. Uh, but today we are going to talk about um, the recently canonized Romero. Fairly recently, yeah. It was, was it 2018? I think that's right. That Romero received official canonization. St. Um, Oscar Romero. St. Romero. So today we will be talking about St. Romero, Bishop 
saint, leader, activist, hero. So maybe, uh, even though he operates in the backyard of most of our listenership, we have, uh, you never can tell with those international reports, we supposedly have a lot of Russian listeners. Um, Duh. Yeah, so if you're into topless horseback riding... Stop, <laughs> anyway, anyway, but mo- most of our audience is here in the states. <laughs> He's—they have a beautiful president. Let's... He's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. But a lot of Americans do not know much about Oscar Romero. Um, and even though he's a Latin American leader, he's a huge figure during the El Salvador Civil War. But right now, a lot of people's attention is turned back towards. Uh, Latin America. A lot of Americans are looking south right now as Venezuela finds itself in some pretty serious turmoil. Um, so the currency is collapsing. People are not happy. The The way I understand it is their unicameral uh, Congress or parliament or whatever that legislative body has picked a new president uh, without the permission of the current president. Yeah, so basically you have a legitimacy crisis there and two competing presidents so far not that much blood in the streets, but we need to be praying that this gets resolved peacefully. So with so many of us paying more attention to South America, Central America, more than we usually do, I think it's a good time to talk about Oscar Romero, uh, who was a powerful voice for the hurting during the turmoil in El Salvador. Can you give us a little bit of background on his setting? I'm really glad that that we put Romero in this book. Um, He, you know, I've taught the moral leaders class for 20 plus years now, but Romero had never been in the class until the last couple of years. And I'm really glad that he's in there now, Uh, partly because his his emergence as a moral leader that we would want to honor was late. And so that's it's different than most of the other people in the book. Romero was born in very humble circumstances in a little mountain village in El Salvador. Uh, He was always uh, a very devout and pious child. His his desire to become a priest was pretty early, though his father was not in favor of it, tried to dissuade him, it looked like. But he he studied for the priesthood. He went to Rome, actually, studied at the Vatican uh, for his final seminary training was actually during World War II, which was a kind of a it's scary, an interesting time to be in the Vatican. scary time to be there in, yeah, in Rome. Um, made it back. 1943 began a career as a very traditional priest, and then he had administrative responsibilities as like an auxiliary bishop. So he did both the grunt work of priest stuff like you know, catechism and confession and some preaching and and a lot of paper shuffling and administrative roles. He was a hyper-Orthodox, traditionalist, conservative, kind of bureaucratic even. Mm-hmm. That's how you get into those sorts of positions. Yeah. You don't get picked to be... You can politics your way into the archbishop's seat, but to be the auxiliary working for the... You credential your way there. So, So... Not anybody who anybody would have ever heard of. Just a functionary, right? But 
also in some ways fairly unlikable according to people who knew him. He was kind of brittle and, and defensive and a little OCD. So, But then he was named Archbishop based in San Salvador in, I have to check this day, it's either 76 or 77. And, and this was at the point where the political tensions within El Salvador between the masses of the working poor, mainly peasants in the fields, mm-hmm. who were growing coffee to export to us. Yeah, their economy had very recently, for from Romero's perspective, shifted to being a cash crop state for North America's need for consumer products. Yeah. And so the clash between them and the tiny oligarchy that controlled the government, the farms, the banks, the media, the military, and was sure enough going to keep structuring society in their own interests, and which had had the church as its ally for uh, most of it, I mean, for most of its history. That's true mm-hmm. across Latin America. And it's a benefit of the way colonial... Right. Powers worked. Colonial legacy. But the story as to how his heart changed is, is interesting and somewhat disputed. One one clear factor was that the Jesuit priest, Father Rutilio Grande, who had presided at his ordin- or his installation as Archbishop, mm-hmm. an older a friend of his, uh, had been murdered brutally by uh, the National Guard, I believe it was. Was he present for that? He he was not at the site. You know, he was not in the car or whatever. But he he was called in and saw him dead. And it became apparent to him that this that this conflict was becoming an increasingly deadly one. That even the priests were not exempt from mm-hmm. being targeted. That if you stood with the poor on behalf of their most basic dignity and rights, uh, you were risking everything. But that as the pastor of of these people, that was his place. Our our last episode was about King. And towards the end of his life and his work, he started talking about, they're, they're coming for me. He yeah. knew that his story was probably going to end a certain way. And receiving threats uh, covertly from the state, and constant death threats from the public, he knew this movie is going to end a certain way. Uh, Romero starts saying similar things towards the end of his life. He was anticipating his his death and he uh, i read somewhere it might have been this book lines from him like when when i'm martyred i want to be alone yeah i'm not afraid of this but i'm afraid other people might get hurt yeah. in that process but we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. how does he go from being pretty orthodox pretty standard frankly boring catholic priest and like you say he's doing a lot of just the grunt work until his archbishop appointment but still he's a very faithful, mundane uh, church leader. How do you get from that to being sort of this liberation theology character beyond that spark of grande? We start to yeah. see um, his understanding of the com- the growing conflict 
how how do we get the transition of his theology and his thinking? Well, there's a really important intervening step. He gets appointed uh, to pastor in a community of the poor. And this takes him out of the bishop's headquarters role, out of the administrative role. And he says that basically it reconnected him to his roots. And um, he said, I, I kind of forgotten where I came from mm-hmm. a little bit. And then this Cathedrals is Cathedrals can do that to you. Yeah, this was when he was asked, um, why, how did you change? And, and he was trying to tamp down the idea that it was some kind of just conversion around the death of Rutilio Grande. But I would say that his heart was broken by the plight of the poor that he was pastoring. And it, it had to do with comprehensively the brutal working conditions, the low pay, the lack of clean drinking water, the, the fact that women didn't have often medical care when they were giving birth, um, that education was so horrible, that, that political rights were so limited or non-existent. It was exploitation of a subject, basically peasant class, mm-hmm. And these were his people. And whenever, whenever anybody would organize anything, they were viciously attacked. Mm-hmm. There, there are several peasant revolts in the years leading up to him becoming. There was a huge one in 1932 that uh, was called La Matanza. Mm-hmm. 30,000 murdered. Um, and then lots of shootings and bodies left by the side of the road uh, during the period that we're talking about in his life. So... There comes a time where a person has to decide where they're going to stand. And and the Latin American church had to decide, too. Um, do we stand with the poor or do we stand with the oligarchs? And in the end, he he stood with the poor. What's What makes that so interesting is that Earlier in his career, he had resisted precisely those who said the church needs to stand with the poor. Mm-hmm. He wanted uh, priests to stay in their on their lane, stay in their lane, basically uh, <clears throat> do the sacraments, uh, preach, you know, the the lectionary, uh, do the sacraments, and baptize the children and catechize the young young people. And but but it was a more traditional understanding of of the role of the church. Um, but he, he ended up actually gradually developing his own kind of practical theology of of, uh, of ministry, you might say, in the context of that deeply divided and violent society. And some of the, the some of the things we quote in the book reveal he had become quite a quite a rich uh, scholar, you might say, or at least practitioner of. And under, you know, somebody who understood what Christian political engagement, kind of how it fits with the gospel, how it mm-hmm. expresses the gospel. So he felt compelled because his people were being exploited, harmed, and killed. And so in his brief years as archbishop, he exploited every opportunity he had to speak up for them. Stuff like naming the people who had been murdered that week in a Sunday sermon. This week, brothers, 
we remember these 12 people who have been killed um, and we protest. You do that from the pulpit of the Cathedral Church in San Salvador, that's not a small thing. Mm-hmm. He also went back to, he had earlier had a, like a radio ministry that was more pedestrian. He turned it to a uh, context where he could do some of this and protest and, and preach uh, that this should end. Um, he uh, used the church to shelter people who were at risk of being killed. Um, he you know, provided various kinds of resources and help to people who were in desperation, maybe because they're because the dad had been had been murdered, and so the family needed some support, um, he just turned the church on behalf of the of the poor, and in so doing, certainly courted threats and risk. But nobody really thought that an archbishop would be would be killed, but he was. He was the. He was killed in his church, right? He was actually in a hospital where he was doing mass. Okay. But he in was, the mass. He was an archbishop at this hospital where he actually lived, too. He was doing a funeral mass, <clears throat> I understand. And and he was just he had just finished the homily and was about to, to do the Eucharist and he was shot from the back of the church. Um the first the first arts bishop killed in worship in the Catholic Church since Thomas a Becket in 1170. It's incredible. So, you know, so this is not something that happens routinely. The idea is that the church is a sanctuary. Um, that's where people are supposed to be able to go and hide when somebody wants to hurt them. Um, the church is sacred space and there has always been a kind of you know, somewhat greater immunity and safety in the church and certainly for high church officials. Mm-hmm. Um, so the desecration of, a, of murdering an archbishop while he's saying mass, it's one of the things that is most memorable about Romero's story, I think. Yeah, I've, I've been gripped by the scene from the Romero movie for yeah. a long time since I saw that in high school. Mm-hmm. So, and in the end... Uh, the bloodletting only intensified in, in El Salvador. The the cycle of violence, mainly the vast majority of it on the part of the right-wing governments that continued to um, brutalize the population. Uh, our understanding of who El Salvador has become and some of the challenges that they face it, it has to be has to trace back to this period. Uh, a lot of refugees came our way. A lot of them came undocumented. So we have a massive Salvadoran immigrant community, a lot of them undocumented immigrants. The gang issue that we hear about a lot, mm-hmm. MS-13. That's one of the most Sa- dangerous places in the world mm-hmm. to be. It is. The cities in El Salvador. Still, and it's one reason why people keep desperately coming to our to our borders. It also must be said that the U.S. in the context of the Cold War supported the Salvadoran government and paramilitaries mm-hmm. um, because we were attempting to stamp out communism. And uh, communism was identified with dissent and dissent with communism. And so we thought about things in a Cold War, uh, distorted Cold War perspective. And so our government helped to train and equip the people who killed 
the people who Romero was trying to protect. And so our fingerprints are on Latin America, on the Salvadoran situation, and um, quite directly, actually. We bear responsibility, or at least a share in that responsibility. And we've been quick to, to get involved in Venezuela in this perceived opening today. What might the legacy ministry of Romero speak into that situation? Let me step back and just talk a little bit about gospel for just a second. Okay, bring it. Um, Preach. I, I increasingly think that the, the first question I would ask any ministerial candidate for any role in any church is what is your gospel or what is the gospel according to you mm-hmm. and Romero's gospel changed um, as did the gospel um, in the, the in the liberation theology world Many people who are listening to this podcast may still be in churches in which the gospel is Jesus loves you, died on the cross for your sins so that you could go to heaven if you believe in him. Romans Road. Roman Roman Road, right. Yeah. And so it's it's all about um, personal salvation and entry into heaven. And that is a very powerful dimension of the gospel. But it doesn't say anything to the starving peasant other than endure, because if you mm-hmm. believe, uh, you will go to heaven when you die. Romero's gospel was basically a Roman Catholic version of what I just said until pretty late in his life and in his journey. Um, but finally, uh, he concluded that the gospel must be holistic. It must include this world and the next world. It must be good news for the poor. Um, it must have a word to say about their dignity. Um, and he ended up calling, he ended up talking about salvation integral, uh, integral salvation body and soul, mm-hmm. this world and the next world. Liberation theology could sometimes be faulted for for disappearing the eternal perspective into the, this worldly perspective. Um, but a good liberation theology says that what God wants is the deliverance and rescue and liberation of people in all dimensions of their God-given personhood. Right? God made us as whole creatures, body, mind, soul, spirit, and hope for eternity. And the, the message of the gospel must be good news for this world and in eternity. And Jesus offered both. So in the end, most people who face, or many people like Romero, who end up facing grotesque conditions of injustice, wondering what is the word of the Lord for this context, they find their way back to the prophets. Mm-hmm. They find their way back to the actual ministry and teaching of Jesus. And um, 
and they end up with a holistic gospel. So his his message ended up being a message that was an integral salvation, a holistic gospel. It was a kind of a synthesis. It wasn't pure liberation theology, but it had a message of liberation for the poor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it called for the creation of just societies where people don't get killed if they say, I'd like to be able to feed my family, please. Um, so I still think that American Christianity is afflicted by an awful lot of one-sided gospel, incomplete gospel, preaching and teaching. Sometimes in the context of the poor, often in the context of the wealthy, um, who are not looking for rescue on this earth because they're doing fine. So that's where I I would want to go. Also want to say a word to pastors. Romero was the least likely candidate to end up dying on behalf of the poor of El Salvador. That's one reason why he was appointed archbishop. They thought he was safe. Safe choice. Safe choice. Bureaucrat. You'd think the Catholics would know better. That's how you get Vatican II. (laughs) Um, Safe choice. But he wasn't a safe choice because he cared about his people. The pastor is the shepherd of the flock. So what happens to your flock matters to you. Mm-hmm. It's in your heart. And and if they weep, you weep because they're your people. That's what I believe a pastor is. Not a showman. Or a showwoman. There you go. Be and, inclusive. And, and so I think Romero is a... And he wasn't the only one. Uh, this is a lot of what happened to the clergy in general who... Mm-hmm. who radicalized they loved their people and so they stood in solidarity with their people and the concerns of their people became their concerns and the suffering of their people they took on for themselves so watch out for loving people as a pastor because you might end up being changed by the heartbreak of your people as as a pastor the thing that i received reading this chapter again encountering romero again um was the courage that it takes to change your mind about something uh, especially in the context of people that want you to be certain a lot of a lot of people treat the office of the pastor as uh, your job is to believe so that we can feel safe yeah that's true you do the church so that we don't have to you're not supposed to change your mind on anything we picked you god called you here we hired you as a certain person there's risk in changing on things and we we treat that as inconsistency Uh, in political world the term flip-flopper can get you um, in a lot of trouble you're supposed to remain static romero's um courage to be dynamic is what set him on the path to being killed at the altar. Um, but it's the path that could bring about integral salvation. And this was the most highly visible Christian role in the country. Mm-hmm. He wasn't 
a local parish priest somewhere by this point. In a Catholic country, if you're the highest ranking Catholic official, that's a hugely visible role. Everybody's watching you. It's kind of like when Pope John Paul II was cardinal in Poland and then was, was, was Pope. There's a certain kind of untouchability, you think, and certain constant visibility. And, yeah, so for him to change his mind because his heart was broken by the suffering of his people. The other thing is, the archbishop is responsible for the clergy. Mm-hmm. Right? So when the priests start getting killed, the sense of I need to take care of and stand in solidarity with my other priests who are paying the price for their people is also there. So there's a certain kind of thing happening in leadership here. Solidarity, yeah, um, representation, care, like you know, like like you put your arms around the the your whole people and you're trying to kind of shelter them next to you and to protect them and to stand up for them. So it's a it's a beautiful a beautiful story. Um, and and I am glad that he is now seen for the saint that he was. Um, he was not a saint on his whole journey. He was not admirable his whole journey, but he sure came through in a big way in the crucible. Mm-hmm of um, where he was really tested the most. Now with the permission of Brazos Press, we'll listen to the leadership lessons from the audiobook recording of Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. Leadership Lessons Oscar Romero's life and work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. It is never too late. You may have spent an entire career in one line of work or a lifetime with certain beliefs, but it is never too late to change. What you do tomorrow better defines you as a leader than what you did yesterday. Practice self-examination. Romero dared to look at himself in the mirror and to grow as an individual over the course of his life. Never let the pursuit of perfection be such a high ideal that it is unattainable but never cease trying to improve and become a better version of yourself. Evaluate structures. Seeing the whole forest, not just the trees, is a hard skill to learn, but an important one to master. Study the structures of human communities, how systems interconnect, who benefits, and who suffers. It will help you better work with individuals within those systems and create change at a far larger scale. Develop communication and listening skills. Romero had a talent for communicating over the radio all his life. Understanding technology, especially communications technology, helps leaders reach people in new ways. Where Romero changed was in realizing that the best communicators spend more time listening than they do speaking. Responsibility changes you. As archbishop in the capital city, Romero had a responsibility to look after his flock and to protect the church and its clergy. And he changed from the man he was. Do not assume that you will remain the same person once you have responsibility to protect and care for others. It changes all of us. 
Oscar Romero stands at the forefront of a theology in which Christians are called to participate in a kingdom of God that is beyond our control or comprehension. Such a theology belies easy categorization. It refuses to idolize wealth or power, or to sacrifice human beings in the name of national security or social order. Yet it does not shy away from the brutalities of the human heart. How easy it is to denounce structural injustice, institutionalized violence, social sin. And it is true, this sin is everywhere. But where are the roots of this social sin? In the heart of every human being. Present-day society is a sort of anonymous world in which no one is willing to admit guilt, and everyone is responsible. We are all sinners, and we have all contributed to this massive crime and violence in our country. Salvation begins with the human person, with human dignity, with saving every person from sin. Romero did not just minister to the poor. He also tried to evangelize the society that made them poor. Perhaps that is his legacy, testifying to the repercussions of bringing God's justice into a fallen world. It is very easy to be servants of the word without disturbing the world. A very spiritualized word, a word without any commitment to history, a word that can sound in any part of the world because it belongs to no part of the world. A word like that creates no problems, starts no problems. What starts conflicts and persecutions, what marks the genuine church, is the word that, burning like the prophets, proclaims and accuses. This is the hard service of the word. But God's spirit goes with the prophet, with the preacher. For he is Christ, who keeps on proclaiming his reign to the people of all times. Thank you, David. Thank you, Brother Jeremy. We're glad that you chose to spend some time with us today at the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. If you are enjoying this project, please like, subscribe, share, comment, leave us reviews in various places. It does more than you can imagine to expand our audience. Thank you for listening.